This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I know that many of you are watching The Alienist on television right now. There are a lot of true crime and history podcasts out there doing special episodes about it, which is awesome. I wanted to do something special too, but as always, I try to go right to the experts. And no, not Caleb Carr, (laughs) but someone just as good, an expert on 1890s New York City and an actual historical consultant on the show. I'm so pleased to have author and historian Richard Zacks back again. For those of you who may recall, he was on once before to talk about The Pirate Hunter, the true story of Captain Kidd, which was highly entertaining and informative. Today he's here to discuss one of my favorite books of all time, his classic Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's quest to clean up sin-loving New York. So great to have you here once more. Thank you. Great. Good to talk. This is a book that makes me so happy whenever I read it. There's just something about this era in New York that I'm completely drawn to. How did this book come to fruition? Did it take you a long time to write it? Uh, Unfortunately, it took a really long time to write it. And it came... It occurred because, frankly, I was pretty jealous of Caleb Carr's The Alienist, and I thought I would take a crack at writing some fiction set in the 1890s. So I did all this research and probably wasted close to a year and then just was not producing a novel. And um, probably the best story that I stumbled on, the most undertold, was Roosevelt as police commissioner. I mean, there are other other great ones. There are lots of good ones. But so it came about that way. And then... um, during the course of writing the book, my son wound up getting sick for about a year. So it took almost five years to write this book, but I, I'm really pleased the way it came out. So I know that we're going to talk about New York City through this entire interview, but I'd love it if you could kind of set the stage for us to start with. What was the city in general like in the early 1890s? 
politically, economically, culturally, etc. Well, it was the it was the most vibrant, uh, dynamic city in New York uh, city city in the country by far. I mean, it had a, we forget it was the largest port in the country. It had a hundred active piers. It had uh, it also had a hundred live theaters that were running constantly. It had a population of almost two million. It had and, and more of them were immigrants than not. Um, it, you walked down the streets of New York, you heard a babble of foreign languages. It was just also such a, I don't know how else to put it, cauldrons better than the cliche melting pot of, of rich and poor, but to such extremes we can't imagine. I mean, in 1896, the, the Supreme Court struck down uh, a federal income tax as being unconstitutional. So the wealthy just basically amassed these enormous sums with, with no checks and balances on them, and the poor had no safety net. So you just can't imagine the, the poverty and the wealth that were basically, you know, 10 blocks apart in this city. And uh, it was noisy. It was crowded. It, it had four above-ground uh, uh, elevated train lines. It had the horse carriages still. It had it generated 1.8 million pounds of horse manure a day. I mean, it had 60,000 active horses. It just I, I'm like you. I love this this time period. And I was totally drawn to it. And, uh, and and the Roosevelt experiment was pretty interesting. So before we get to Roosevelt, I want to go back a little further in history. Let's talk about Tammany Hall. What was Tammany Hall and why was it so important to New York politics? Well, Tammany Hall was basically a Democratic political club that just took off. I mean, it became extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily corrupt. But but the Tammany people would argue, you know, why shouldn't I make a few bucks if I'm doing right by you? You know, I mean, it was a, it was a very corrupt organization. Obviously, by the time Boss Tweed you know, was, was steal. I mean, the, the level of stealing just got out of control after a while, but I mean, I love the story. Um, you know, one Tammany hall contractor was, uh, was hired to deliver a thousand pounds of sponges and he only, you know, they waited and he only delivered a uh, hundred pounds and he's, he's testifying in court to this, this shortfall. And he goes, hell, did you weigh them dry? <laughs> just, just the moxie, the arrogance. So Tammany Hall is basically a democratic political club who's completely corrupt. They dominate the cities and the rest of New York state is dominated by, uh, you know, a more sanctimonious do-gooder Republicans. And there was constant warfare between the two and uh, the Republicans controlled the state so they could control senators and things like that. But in fact, the whole reason that New York got expanded from just New York used to be before 1898 was just the borough of Manhattan and, and most of the Bronx. And uh, after 1898, the Republican legislature up in Albany added, you know, Queens, Staten Island and Brooklyn only because they thought that maybe they could water down the Democratic dominance and make New York City a Republican city. Totally backfired. They just wound up creating more Democrats. But literally, the reason New York City is so big is because the, the Republicans were fighting Tammany Hall. And Tammany Hall was, was really entrenched in the local wards. It was, it was all about controlling the vote. Totally. You know, the, the immigrants get off the boat and the first person to meet them was, was a Tammany guy or a representative of Tammany guy. And, and you have to give them credit. I mean, they delivered 
they got the votes in exchange. They definitely were corrupt and made a lot of money on the side, but they also delivered services that weren't otherwise delivered. They used to say that as soon as there was a fire, a Tammany Hall guy would be there to set you up somewhere else, you know, get you a place. I mean, there just was no social safety net. So you could argue that they were corrupt, but they were also delivering services that the Republicans were more, uh, were left, were far less generous. So, uh, you know, you could argue that, that nothing much has changed, but I, I mean, I would hope the Democrats are less corrupt than Tammany Hall nowadays. So New York City, pre-Roosevelt, as you've already said, was quite an astounding place. With all the corruption going on, a reform movement began gaining speed in the early 90s with the Reverend Charles Parkhurst leading the charge. Could you talk about Parkhurst and his efforts? Yeah, Society for the Prevention of Crime. I mean, Parkhurst was the um, was the preacher down. Um, oh, it's near here, near Union Square down here, and uh, he started this movement. He was just obsessed with the corruption in the police force because that was also a way that um, Tammany funded some of the things they needed. Is they took they took kickbacks basically. I mean, we'll get to it later, but three basic vices: you know, prostitution, um, gambling, and after hours drinking, and and uh, Parkhurst, Charles Parkhurst became obsessed with stopping that. And he, and he really was convinced that if he delivered the goods on these guys and, and uh, you know, revealed what they had done, that the city would be so outraged that it would bring it to an end. But it, it didn't it didn't quite work out that way. He wound up bringing more, you know, misery down on himself. But but his movement did kickstart a what they call the, the fusion vote, you know, where Democrats who were sick of the corruption of Tammany would come over and and vote with the Republicans. And and the reform movement just eked out enough votes in order to get to get a reform mayor elected. And that's what would eventually lead to to Teddy Roosevelt. One of the more compelling parts of your book is when the Reverend Charles Parkhurst decided to go slumming. He wanted to experience these places himself. And he enlisted a detective named Charles Gardner with a, a pretty questionable past as a guide. Could you talk about this tour of debauchery? Yeah, I just love it. 1892, you have Parkhurst, and and there's a book called The Doctor and the Devil, or it's got a subtitle, Midnight Adventures of Dr. Parkhurst. And it's just one of the most wonderful, you know, 125-year-old books you're ever going to find. He basically, Charlie Gardner, trying to make some money, um, wrote up his version of their sin tour. And they just... It's it's fantastic because they wind up in they wind up in the different you know types of saloons. I mean, there were like stale beer dives that were so horrible that they drank a thing called dog snot, which was basically when the bartender wiped the bar down with a with a dirty rag. They'd wring out the rag into a bucket, and then the buckets were filled enough to create dog snot, the cheapest beer in the city. You know, I mean. <laughs> It just uh, they went to a, they went to a brothel and they asked for this was a day of getting French circuses. A French circus was actually uh, kind of an acrobatic performance. You have to realize what women wore back in that era. How you know we we like to stand you know in judgment that the um, that the you know a Muslim woman in in a burqa say is so incredibly repressed and covered up. But actually, a Victorian woman in 1890s New York, a wealthy one, would have been more covered up. She would have worn, you know, lace up boots. She would have had a a dress to her ankles. She would have worn a top with long sleeves. She would have worn gloves. She would have worn a hat and she would have worn a veil. So she would have had no skin exposed whatsoever. So 
seeing any skin back in that era was incredibly exciting. So um, when Gardner took Parkhurst, he took him to some brothels and one of them offered a French circus. So they pay for this French circus, which is basically the women stripping down and doing things like the can-can and other things because you just never got to see, you know, a woman not wearing any any underwear, kicking her legs up, you know, it was incredibly risque back then. Um, and they also played leapfrog, <laughs> you know, nude leapfrog, which is what Charlie Gardner got. In, I mean, what Parker's got in so much trouble for. So Gardner's asked under oath, you know, testifying about this whole thing before the police committed Lexow commission. And they said, what was your role in all of this stuff? And he goes, I was the frog. So I mean, they're just, they're just uh, I just love this tour. He also went to a place where they had um, trans, um, you know, either trans, uh, transvestite um, uh, males dressing as females um, with a woman named Scotch Ann, who was in charge. And uh, it, it just, it, it gave, Par- Parkers couldn't believe, you know, that he fled out of that place, he said. He, he just couldn't believe what he was seeing. And then, you know, all this, all this testifying about it, it led to temporary change, but didn't lead to real change. And we can get into that later. But. It's it's so funny. At, at the beginning of their slumming tour, Parkhurst is shocked that they're going to places where a woman's hemline is almost to her knee. <laughs> and by the end, he's watching Naked Leapfrog. <laughs> and, and each night, Parkhurst is demanding to Gardner, show me something worse. Show me something worse. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love the idea of the reverend, uh, you know, coming down from the pulpit and getting getting this tour and uh, being exposed to it. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Parkhurst found himself up against numerous police officials who wanted to finish his reformist ways. Can you go over the organization and makeup of the NYPD in the early 1890s and why they were so eager to quash Parkhurst and his allies. I'm sure there was there was about three thousand cops back then, and one thing you should know it's just kind of a strange detail, but I just really like it that the the wealthy were so afraid of of the underclass or the anarchists or anybody uh, rising up that the police slept in shifts at the police station, so that in case there were riots or you know anything desperate where they needed, so these cops were working. Um, unbelievable amount of hours. I think if you do the math, it, it totals over. They're either sleeping there or working more than a hundred hours a week. Um, so it became like what I call like the like a fraternity house, like this blue wall. And they were they were mostly Irish. It was about at least two thirds Irish on the force. And there was just a system of bribery basically in place. I mean, you wanted to do anything in the city, you knew you had to grease the palm of a cop and. It was just considered almost like the way business was done. I mean, for instance, there all the, you know, uh, Jewish pushcart guys down on the Lower East Side. Technically, there was a law that you couldn't leave your pushcart in the same place for more than 10 minutes. Well, that, of course, is the most idiotic law ever. A guy sets up his pushcart and he sells. It's not really a traveling thing. It was just an open-air street market. But so you gave the um, you gave the cop 25 cents so that you could stay there. Or um, the streetwalkers. They were everywhere in the city, and you wound up having to to pay off um, pay off a cop to do that. There was a system where some of the low level bribery the cops got to keep, but there was a more organized system of plainclothes detectives 
who collected for the captains, and then the captains paid off the inspectors, and the inspectors paid off Tammany Hall. So that was where the big money was, and that was about keeping the brothels open, the casinos open, um, and running the uh, saloons all night long instead of the, the 1 a.m. closing time. And there was a hierarchy amongst these prostitutes as well. You write in your book that there were over 30,000 prostitutes in the city plying their trade. It it was obviously a huge business. But but some of these prostitutes were girlfriends of the police officers, and they got the choice spots, Um, maybe a corner on Fifth Avenue, for instance. Yeah, copper girl. You know, that was a good a good good person to be i mean it's it's a dark it's a dark uh, vision of the city but they some some of the reformers did the math and i saw one that said that there were 40,000 prostitutes who averaged four clients a day so that's 160,000 trips to a prostitute on a given day in new york well there were 1 million men you know over the age of say 15 in the city um, so that basically means that one in six New York men went to a prostitute every day. I mean, it just was a very different world. Women, you know, there was still the huge pressure to be a virgin bride. And uh, women were disgraced. There were good women and bad women. So in order for a male to have sex, you didn't go to a bar. And there were, any woman in a bar was working at, at the late hours. There were no women that someone could pick up and start a relationship. It just didn't work that way. It was a very different life. So Parkhurst finds a nemesis in Big Bill Devery. Can you talk about Big Bill and how he tried to stamp out Parkhurst and his crew? Well, Devery's just a great character. He was a boxer and a bartender. He born in the 20s in the east side of New York, Irish. And uh, he was corrupt. And, uh, you know, he just... Uh, he was he was beloved by, by the other officers, but he was just... He once said to... Um, um, to Lincoln Steffens, the journalist, you know, he just had such gall. He said, uh, have you seen any stray graft running around that I might have missed? I mean, <laughs> he, he was just out out for himself and um, he made so much money. Um, you know, I mean, I don't want to give away the punchline, but he he wound up helping to found a baseball team. So, I mean, he's uh, he's really a character. He spoke in the, like when he talked about. Uh, cross-dressing prostitutes, you know, young men. He he called them degenerates, not degenerates, degenerates. And um, he said uh, to the men, you know, he didn't want them to drink. He didn't drink. And a lot of the top Irish guys, it's interesting. Those were the ones that were successful. They didn't drink. And he said, um, he said to the men, and uh, don't look, it don't look nice showing you buttons at the bar, you know, because they wore these these night uniforms with the big brass buttons. So it don't look nice showing you buttons at the bar. You know, he just he spoke in New Yorkese and he was an incredibly popular captain. And for a while there, he was in charge of the the what we would now call the Lower East Side. It was just called the East Side then. And it was this nine block precinct that uh, (laughs) was predominantly Jewish and was incredibly corrupt and had more brothels per square foot, maybe than any place on the planet. And um, Devery made a lot of money, you know. selling them the right to keep open. Devery was responsible for setting up Charles Gardner, right? He, he worked hard to get Gardner in a compromising position so they could embarrass Parkhurst. Do you mind telling that story? Well, I think it was Lily Clifton was the, um, was the prostitute. And basically they wanted to show that Charlie Gardner was, they wanted to show that he was willing to cheat on his wife and that he went out drinking all night long with, uh, with her. 
and they got uh, they got her to testify. But it was such a hypocritical, prudish era. The testimony of a prostitute, you know, wasn't necessarily going to be enough to put Charlie Gardner away. Parker's defended his detective through the whole mess, but it sounded like Gardner was definitely participating in some graft himself. Yeah, I think Gardner was a little dirty, and Gardner winds up disappearing. And uh, the New York City cops basically told Gardner they would make it unbearable for him to try and live, continue to live in New York City. And if you think of the power of the cops, they certainly could if they wanted to. Well, I guess he got the last laugh with his his book, though. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So it's it should be it should be better known. This book is great. I mean, it really it re, it. I don't know. I almost can I just turn to a random page and pick something? Oh yeah, just, that would be fun. Sure. You know, just uh, let's just see uh, any. Oh, I happen to get the Golden Golden Rule Pleasure Club. Okay, so I led I led the way to the Golden Rule Pleasure Club. This dive was then situated in West Third Street in a four-story brick house. We entered the resort through the basement door, and as we did so, a buzzer, automatic alarm, gave the proprietors of the house information that we were in the place. The proprietress, a woman known as Scotch Ann, greeted us. She was quite a pretty woman, tall, black-haired, and of graceful form. Good evening, she said smilingly. Won't you come in? The basement was fitted up into little rooms by means of cheap partitions which ran to the top of the ceiling from the floor. Each room contained a table and a couple of chairs for use of the customers of this vile den. In each room sat a youth whose face was painted, eyebrows blackened, and whose airs were those of a young girl. Each person talked in a high falsetto voice and called the other by women's names. I explained. The doctor instantly turned on his heel and fled from the house at top speed. Why well, I wouldn't stay in that house, he gasped for all the money in the world. The doctor saw worse sights later, but his nerves had become more accustomed then to the scenes that were even more degrading. We hurried along until we reached a house well over on West 3rd Street. Anyhow, it goes on, but they described... The, the next house is a tight house. They're wearing Mother Hubbards. They're speaking in French. You know, it's just, it's an adventure. It's a night out in the city, a week out in the city. Can I say how happy I am that you have that book so close to you <laughs> and that you were able to pull it out so quickly? <laughs> it's right on my desk all the time, actually. I'll ask you about the alienist at the end. I, I know you can't talk a lot about it, but but that passage that you just read it's it's very reminiscent of what's happening in the alienist at this point in the series. I I agree. I I, I mean I can talk a little about it. I was the historical consultant uh, for the for the uh, ten part series that's airing on TNT based on Caleb Carr's book, and uh, it was a great great experience for me to spend well over a year you know consulting with them and supplying all kinds of his I mean I'm really proud of how the history came out you know I I had no role in the drama I didn't get to write the scripts but I did get to suggest um scenes and correct history and try and get things things right and um you know some of the touches like the opening um uh I think I'm allowed to say I suggested the um the bit with the with the police you know they had to figure out a way for the policeman to sound the alarm that a murder had been committed and you know initial thought was you know they run to like some sort of emergency box or they make a phone call or, you know, whatever. And I said, well, the way they actually did it in the 1890s was the policeman banged his nightstick on, on a lamppost or on the street. And the next uh, beat over, you know, where the policeman was, was probably about five blocks away and he heard it and he banged and the next guy banged. And so it had like this Tom Tom effect. And I loved, you know, starting with like banging nightsticks and having the sound sort of echo through New York city, sounding the alarm. 
So uh, that was great working on it. Yeah, I, I was struck by the accuracy of that scene as I was watching it. Very, very impressed with that detail. And that's because of you. Thank you. Yeah, it's because, you know, and I, I got some in there and, um, you know, we took things like sirens, we switched to bells and things. I need to, I just think, you know, doors, I think we got in a few of those clackers. I don't know if you've seen, but you turn to, and it clacks. It hits, it hits like metal on metal, clack, clack, clack. You turn it around, it, it revolves to, to ring a doorbell instead of a buzzer or, you know, we just, we really tried to add a lot of, um, you know, they were just launching um, public baths then. So it seemed appropriate to have, um, you know, the, the, the killer look at, um, you know, in the baths, but, um, but, uh, yeah, non-disclosure and I'm officially not a writer, so I'm a historical consultant, but it was a lot of fun. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. 
But do you know their stories? Their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So, back to the story. So William Strong is elected mayor of New York City in 1894 on a fusion party ticket led by Republicans and anti-Tammany Democrats. One of his duties was to appoint police commissioners, and one of the commissioners he appointed was Theodore Roosevelt. What were some of the goals Mayor Strong had as mayor, and how did he see Roosevelt fitting into the mix? Well, he definitely wanted to be a reform mayor, and part of being reform was to clean up Tammany Hall wherever you could. So he he was choosing someone to definitely try to wipe out the corruption, you know, and Roosevelt had served the previous six years on the Civil Service Commission, which was all about wiping out favoritism and nepotism in in, in federal jobs. So Roosevelt was definitely a crusader reformer. I mean, Strong knew exactly what he was getting when he picked Roosevelt. Can you explain where Roosevelt was in his life at this point when he accepts this position? He was kind of in a, a transition period in his life, right? He was thinking about higher office. Right. Things hadn't turned out. I would argue that things hadn't really turned out the way he had wanted. I mean, he'd served in the New York State Legislature, and then he had that, you know, and, and you know, you read the biographies and you think he's sort of a bigger deal in the early days. I would, I, I don't think he really was because I'm reading, I, I only let myself use um, sources that were 1897 or earlier. I didn't go to later historians. I didn't even go to people who were looking back after he became president and remembering what he did then. I tried really hard to capture Roosevelt the way he was viewed then. <laughs> and it's a very, very different picture. I think I annoyed some some passionate Roosevelt fans. And uh, I mean, I don't really apologize. It's just who he was then. And you can be proud of who he became. But he was more of a gadfly then. He was more he was more of an irritant. He was more of a guy who was who, who wouldn't be quiet and had very, very strong opinions. And I don't think he had expected to stay six years in Washington. And this was a great opportunity to, uh, to, uh, you know, mount a new stage. This was, I mean, this was America's leading city and this was the police and everybody knew about New York cops. And if, if Roosevelt could clean up New York cops, I mean, his future was incredibly bright. This is definitely something not portrayed in the alienist. There are time limitations, of course, but, but some might think that he, he was the police commissioner, but in actuality, he shared those duties with three other men. Can you talk about why things were, were set up this way and how he got along with his counterparts? Well, it was a, it, it was a, a four-man board, and um, it, they needed unanimous votes. And so it, it just uh, it made it very, very difficult. He was, he was elected the president of the board of the police commissioners. So he was actually referred to as President Roosevelt um, pretty often back then, which is pretty funny. Um, but he couldn't, you know, it was a, called a bipartisan board. And the, the logic was we'll have two Democrats and two Republicans. And um, 
<laughs> Roosevelt called it something like a Polish parliament, you know, where the joke was the only way you could solve anything is go out and shoot somebody. I mean, basically, you could have a three-to-one vote, but then you needed the police chief to come in on the side of the three. Uh, it was just, a, for a man like Roosevelt, he needed, he doesn't play well with other children, you know, so he needed to rule the whole thing. And this was incredibly frustrating for him because at first they seemed to be all on the same side. I mean, he was a Republican, so was Frederick Dent Grant, who was the son of Ulysses S. Grant, the president. And then the two Democrats were both reform Democrats. They weren't Tammany Democrats. So it looked at first like the board could get along, but after a few months, no. <laughs> what, what were Roosevelt's duties as a police commissioner? What was he, he doing every day? Well, that was one of the big challenges writing Island of Vice. And I, I, he was actually more, to be honest, more of a bureaucrat, but I refused to write a book about just a bureaucrat. So I went into the city and got the, the, the the brothels, the gambling joints, the after-hour saloons, and made those all come alive so that when Roosevelt is trying to legislate or make a new ruling about it, it won't just be a ruling, you know, a bunch of guys giving speeches in a room. He actually, a lot of his duties were to um, weed out corrupt cops. So they had to run, they had to actually give, each cop was entitled to a trial before the board. And some of them uh, some of these cases dragged on forever. They also met to make new reg- regulations about what they would enforce and, you know, policy. For instance, they introduced the bicycle cops during Roosevelt's time there because Roosevelt, uh, his right-hand man, this guy, Avery Andrews, was an obsessed bicyclist, and he thought that the police could do a better job. You know, this is the day before, you know, there are a couple automobiles floating around, but almost none. So um, the idea was bicycle cops. They just started with four. And... Um, uh, you know, I mean, the biggest thing, Roosevelt was sitting in his office, receiving letters, receiving complaints, um, trying to negotiate with other board members. The biggest thing is he wanted to weed out the corrupt Tammany cops, but it was a little harder than he thought um, to do it. He did get rid of Burns, who was the chief, very soon on. And that's actually portrayed in The Alienist because Burns is this kind of malingering figure who seems bitter that he got forced out and that. That, you know, he did actually get forced out and he was a little bitter and he did try and make money on Wall Street after that. And and by the way, Thomas Burns was a very famous police detective in New York City, perhaps the most famous who had ever served. Right. Right. And it was you could argue that Roosevelt, you know, Roosevelt just couldn't stand having a corrupt. And frankly, Burns was too powerful. Roosevelt couldn't stand anyone else with that much power near him either. But um, Burns create, helped create the rogues gallery. I mean, other places had taken photographs of criminals, but Burns uh, made a, a system out of it. There was a wall, a beautiful wall of um, photographs that they had, and they and they wrote, you know, long um, thumbnails about each of these um, each of these criminals. It's an amazing book. I think it's called Criminals. Um, I have this book too, the uh, Professional Criminals of America. Um, Burns's book from the 1880s. Uh, yeah, he was the most famous detective. He claimed to have you know, done all this innovation. He he seems to have borrowed a little from Sherlock Holmes when he would hold a press conference. But but Burns was a good cop in many in many regards, and he he got thrown out. He did make a lot of money off Wall Street tips, and he would run favors for the wealthiest of New York City. But most of the the police chiefs did did that exact thing. Um, and uh, you know, stock tips, and there was no such thing as insider trading till the 1930s. So people just instantly say, oh, Burns was corrupt. Well, you have to look at the time period. I mean, Mark Twain got insider 
tips from um, H.H. Rogers. Do we think Mark Twain was corrupt? I mean, I don't know what you can't apply a later standard, you know, to something. So anyhow. So as part of his job in maintaining order in the city, Roosevelt decided he wanted to see firsthand what life was like in the dirtier districts and check up on his patrolmen, too. He became really well known for his midnight rambles. Can you describe in more detail what these rambles were? Sure. Um, well, Jacob Reese was a uh, was actually on the crime beat then, and uh, he was the guy that wrote how the you know the other how the other half lives, and uh, he was um, you know pr- part of the progressive agenda to try and get uh, improve the lives of the poor. And um, Roosevelt had read his book and um, was a, was a fan, and basically the two of them just hit it off. They even looked a little alike with the mustaches and the uh, wire rim glasses and uh, short. And um, what people don't realize is even though Roosevelt was born in New York City, he really didn't know New York City very well. He had spent the last six years in uh, Washington and um, he had, uh, you know, lived extensively at Oyster Bay. And uh, he certainly didn't know the grimier sections of New York. So in order to do his job better, he did this amazing thing. He got Jake Reese to take him on these midnight rambles. And I don't know if he thought he was doing it for publicity or not, but it wound up just mesmerizing the country. The country couldn't wait to hear the adventures of this Harvard-educated, you know, basically fairly short um, aristocrat going around in the middle of the night checking up on these big Irish cops. I mean, people loved it. The cartoons were amazing. He, I mean, the cops had this tradition of um, this game of waking up vagrants by hitting them on the bottom of their feet with the nightstick and seeing if they could almost make the vagrant rise up in one thing and be running before they hit the ground. So there were cartoons of Roosevelt slapping the feet of the cops who were sleeping. Cops look for a thing called a coop where they could spend the night. They weren't actually walking their beat. They were just, you know, cooping up. So uh, people loved this. And Roosevelt did get to see a lot of the city that he otherwise knew nothing about. It was great for him. There, there are so many stories in your book about these rambles, but one of them I found particularly funny. Um, he and whoever he was with at the time happened to spot a big patrolman leaning against the wall of a saloon. And, and a hand suddenly appears from the door with, with a bottle of something. And, and they watch this cop down whatever alcoholic beverage was inside. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, well yeah, you weren't allowed to to serve that way. And he certainly wasn't allowed to drink on, um, drink on duty. And, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I think the guy was running down the street yelling ginger ale or something like that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but, they were chasing him. And after Roosevelt identified himself, he demanded to know the cop's name as they were running down the street. And the cop answered ginger ale, ginger ale. <laughs> yeah. You have to realize too, this is a day before photographs and newspapers. So, um, people were less recognizable. Everyone would think, oh, we all know who, what Roosevelt looks like. Well, you know, actually, they knew him more from drawings. So it wasn't so simple knowing who was who, you know. And, and it's great that you bring that up. In, in another one of his rambles, you write about Roosevelt was shocked one night to see all of the officers in one of their precincts actually doing their duty checking doors, etc. So he goes to the precinct and commends the commanding right. officer about what a great job his men are doing. Right. There was someone had drawn in the, in the like stall of the, the bathroom, you know, a picture, look out for this, this guy with the big teeth and the glasses and the mustache, you know, 
And um, so they were they were actually uh, they spread the word. They were doing their job. And and they you know, it's interesting. They had to walk a beat back then and they knew everyone in the neighborhood. It was just, you know, it wasn't patrol cars, obviously. And uh, it's just a very different world. So so as you've you've said, the honeymoon was short lived. Roosevelt's goodwill with New Yorkers started to dissipate when he chose to tackle the Sunday excise law head on. What was this law and why was there so much opposition to it? Well, the upstate Republicans had passed a law that basically said that all saloons must be closed on Sundays. And Tammany Hall just used that as a revenue maker. Basically, the the, the city decided that, I mean, Tammany decided that cops would take a, a small bribe to, and uh, people would come in a side door and... Everyone would be happy. This would make a little money for the cops and the whole thing would be ignored. And it had been ignored for years and years and years. And then Roosevelt comes in and, and on some level he was naive. I mean, I don't think he actually knew how much that that law had been ignored and for how long. But anyhow, when he finds out about it, he has said over and over, my, we will enforce all the laws. We will enforce all the police regulations. Anything that that's on the books will be enforced. So he found himself in a kind of impossible situation, and he he, he orders his men to enforce that law to shut down all these saloons. And these are men. You know, this is a city of a million working men who who work six days a week, and their only day of leisure is Sunday. And they they're thrilled to go to the saloon. And Roosevelt was taking that away from him, and he actually said. I expect to see more picnics with families, you know, and they're just, I don't think so. So they, they, he was in a very rough situation, but, but he did not back down at all in typical Roosevelt style. You know, if, if, if Albany and the Republicans, you know, controlled it would pass a new law that made it legal. I'm sure Roosevelt would have gone along with, he was not in favor of prohibition. He said, if, you know, if, if 1920ths of the, Population oppose the law. I don't believe in enforcing it, you know, about prohibition. So he just found himself. But it was amazing how popular he was the first month or two in office and how quickly that went away. And and a lot of people who, you know, write superficially about Roosevelt don't realize how bad it got when he tried to enforce that law. So you write that that privately he questioned the law. But it didn't matter because the the law was the law and he was going to enforce it no matter what. He didn't see any gray area. He was not a man of gray area. He's a man of black and white. And um, he he only admitted to his sister, Anna, that that he he had, you know, he said that in effect used the word, I think he even used the word sorry or shame. He had some regret, but he never admitted to the people of New York or to police officers. He always talked about enforcing the law up to the hilt which is like, you know, like when you shove a knife into somebody up to the handle, up to the hilt. Um, he he didn't back down on it. And I caused it, it made him spectacularly unpopular. So Roosevelt himself, as you write, wasn't a big drinker, a glass of wine or a flute of champagne at a function on occasion. But that was really it. Unfortunately, alcoholism touched his family in a terrible way at this time. Can you talk about his brother Elliot and his struggles. Right, Elliot. Uh, Elliot was his uh, his brother, and uh, he. Elliot was the father of Eleanor Roosevelt, who would marry Franklin Roosevelt. So it was Eleanor Roosevelt Roosevelt. Um, and uh, anyhow, Elliot. Elliot uh, 
Elliot was supposed to be a star. Elliot was an athlete. Elliot was handsome. And Elliot uh, became a terrible alcoholic and, and wound up cheating on his wife, living with another woman, having a child out of wedlock um, with the German maid. Um, Elliot, uh, who the, and the, the maid, uh, Katie Mann, named the child Elliot, so and middle name Roosevelt, so Elliot Roosevelt Mann. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt never wound up having much contact with her perhaps half-brother. But anyhow, it was just unbelievably painful to Theodore, to Teddy, to witness his brother's decline. And he he wanted to help him, but finally after a while he, he threw his hands up, and he I don't think he expected his brother to die so suddenly of alcoholism. And uh, Roosevelt just was consumed, I always say, with anger or, and shame over the situation. And uh, it's certainly when he – when he saw his brother's dead body surrounded by em- empty alcohol bottles, you know, he, he he was really, really upset. And and I think it certainly colored his, you know, that happened to ha- happen the year before Roosevelt became police commissioner. So I think it was very fresh in his mind, the evils of, of alcoholism. Elliot's death affected him not only because he was extremely close to his brother, especially growing up, but because he was a control freak too, right? And had a hard time in situations like this where he couldn't completely control the situation. Yeah, there are lines that are hard to read at times about about where Roosevelt, where Teddy Roosevelt almost seems to think that his brother should commit suicide or it's better that his brother is dead, given the shame that his brother has caused. And those are hard lines to read. You want, you want to think that maybe he wrote them in a moment of emotional crisis and you know, he'd give anything to have his brother back. But but he was so, so upset about the shame. And, and, and also, you're right, the control, the alcoholism, in Roosevelt's view, was an inability to control oneself properly. So, um, yeah, it was just so, – so this played into, you know, shutting the Sunday saloons did play into some side of him that, that he, he thought maybe he was countering alcoholism. But it was mostly his law and order side. He just – if it was on the – he was going to enforce – there was some law against – dropping bananas in the marketplace. There was some law against playing cards on a ship. I mean, Roosevelt was ready to enforce any law, so he said. So how effective was Roosevelt in enforcing the Sunday closing laws in hindsight? Well, he was surprisingly effective for a while. I mean, they talked about a Sunday Sahara, you know, in the city. And and, and also you have to realize he was cutting out the corruption. If If the cop couldn't let the saloon be open, then he couldn't take a bribe for it. So he, he had, Roosevelt was going after two things, police corruption and, you know, enforcing the law. Um, Roosevelt was very successful for a while. But then um, the Republicans, um, in their wisdom, wound up passing a new law that was, in theory, going to crack down and kind of clean up the situation and make it clear that this was not legal. They passed what's called the Reigns Liquor Law. And... The law basically said that you could not serve on Sundays unless you were a private club or unless you were a hotel with 10 rooms. And what the brilliant bartenders of Manhattan did is every single saloon, not every single saloon, almost every single saloon added 10 rooms. I mean, some of the rooms were a joke. You couldn't even stand up in them. Some were next to the coal bin. But technically now they had 10 rooms and they could serve all the time. Because hotels could serve Sundays and nights. So I really think it changed. You can almost argue it changed the morality of America. Imagine now if if every bar you went into 
had 10 rooms that were cheap that were just up the stairs. I mean, what a different vibe that bar would be. And, you know, if some woman has too much to drink or some man, they wind up up those stairs. Um, and that was not Roosevelt's intention or the Republicans' intention, but it made New York the city that never sleeps. It just, uh, it's so ironic that, that a law meant to clean up the situation about Sunday saloons led to this kind of debauchery. So Peter Conlin succeeded Thomas Burns as police chief. How, how successful was Conlin as, as New York City's new police chief? Uh, he did fine. I mean, he wound up, he and Roosevelt got in some disagreements over a couple of promotions. I mean, if you really dig into it the way I did, this became almost personal that he couldn't believe that Conlin was disagreeing with him. And he couldn't tolerate someone disagreeing with him when he was so convinced he was right on some of these promotions. So this is literally whether a cop, you know, they'd investigate and, and they had to decide who gets made captain. And they needed this unanimous vote or else they needed a three to one vote with Conlin. So there was this Commissioner Parker who started opposing Roosevelt. But if Roosevelt could get Conlin's vote, he could still have the uh, still get his way. And Conlin wound up siding with Parker and it just it just got ugly from there. And Roosevelt, you know, wound up bringing charges against Conlin and, and the whole thing just just got ugly. Roosevelt really had his hands full with all of the different immigrant groups in the city, all with their own agendas, um, like the Germans and their Sunday booze, as, you, as you've already given as an example. In, in one instance, you tell the story of a, a man named Rector Herman yeah. Allwart, right. a noted anti-Semite. Yeah, I love that scene. Um, this is Roosevelt, I would say, at his finest. Um, Herr Allwart, Herman Allwart, is going to come and um, deliver an anti-Semite speech. He's basically a member of the Reichstag, and he's notorious for these opinions. But um, Roosevelt believes that, you know, he's the man's legally booked the hall and has a right to express his opinions. But Roosevelt also wants to send a message to him. So he decided that he would have the entire police protection squad for, for Allwart be Jewish. So all, and Roosevelt, you know, the story keeps getting amplified, but apparently he picked men who look very Jewish, uh, whatever that is. And uh, he, he had them guard Herr Allwart. And, um, you know, the speech came off, came off fine. No, no, Allwart was allowed to express himself. One, uh, there were supposedly more plainclothes cops in the audience than there were spectators. And at one point, some somebody rose up and threw some eggs at him and uh, missed. And Harold Allward said something like, if you weren't Jewish, you would have hit me. You know, I mean, that's about as <laughs> nothing, nothing really too terrible happened. But Roosevelt was incredibly proud and put it in his own autobiography about uh, assigning the Jewish cops to, uh, to, to guard Allward. I wanted to ask you about an article printed on the front page of the New York World which claimed that Roosevelt was so busy trying to enforce petty laws that criminals were flocking to the city knowing that the police would be too busy to bother them. Do I have that right? Yeah, they, the New York world decided to take on Roosevelt, and they, they, they sensed his thin skin pretty early, so they had a really good time. And they ran these cartoons you know, against him and the rest of it, and I, I think it's a carnival of crime, they called it, or whatever. I mean, I, I don't think they had... They had reporters all over the city get taking down the names of every notorious criminal who arrived. They just made these blanket accusations. And it, 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 people don't realize this is Pulitzer's paper. I mean, Pulitzer's probably the most respected name in journalism now. And he ran a yellow newspaper that was 
you know, it did some crusading things against corruption, but it it, it was a, a Democratic paper who wasn't pro Tammany. Um, but um, they also ran some really they ran like sea monster stories still. They were pretty sensationalist. How, how did Roosevelt combat the bad press that was coming his way? What, what was his response? Um, he he pretty much got in their grill. He came back at him. He claimed that he wasn't uh, that he didn't care, but he, he responded. To, he took the bait all pretty much all the time and gave as many speeches as he could defending his behavior. Um, he, uh, I mean, they were really making fun of him. They, 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 they took the, the teeth and the glasses and started making him into an incredible caricature. And, um, you know, he was described as a Puritan, you know, because of the, the crackdowns. And also what was bad for him is he shut down the Sunday saloons, but private clubs were allowed to uh, continue drinking. Uh, you could drink at them. And he, he uh, was a member of the Union League Club, so they'd show Roosevelt in a tuxedo, sipping like a cocktail, while they'd show some poor person literally with their tongue out in, you know, the desert, uh, you know, a city desert scape. Um, they they had way too much fun with Roosevelt. Not only was was Roosevelt in conflict with Tammany Hall Democrats, but he was also having troubles with his own party. Could, could you talk about Roosevelt's friction with Republican boss? Thomas Platt. Well, you could argue that Thomas Collier Platt was one of the most powerful men in the country by controlling the Republican Party in New York State, which could, you know, help select who was going to run for president. Um, and um, basically, the Republicans, uh, they didn't want Roosevelt to do as good a job cracking down on the Sunday saloons as he did. And you know, they wanted, as someone put it, they wanted Roosevelt there almost for window dressing. Here's a law and order guy who's going to say all the right things, give all the speeches, but they don't want to alienate all the voters. And Roosevelt took his job seriously and actually shut down all the all these saloons. So he did wind up alienating his own Republican Party. He wasn't very good at compromising. And they really, Roosevelt really thought that his political career might be over, that he had offended so many powerful people. And, and he basically had to take an appointment job after that. He wasn't running for office. You know, he goes in, into the, the Department of the Navy after, after this is all done. So Roosevelt, Roosevelt, there are numerous quotes and I don't think he was just trying, he, trying to, you know, whatever, low key his ambitions. He was saying he really thought he might not ever win public office again. And, uh, he also wrote at one depressing moment, he, he didn't want the bunnies, which is how he talked to his children, um, to see the spectacle of him trying to eke out a living as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I can so relate. And uh, he, um, he wrote something like 30 books, but the idea of actually supporting his family on them was really horrifying. Well, I wanted to ask you about this, too. Um, New York City had a huge problem with homelessness, didn't it? How bad was it, and what steps were being taken to address it under Mayor Strong's administration? Well, they had a big decision. The, the, there was a lot of private charity where people could stay, uh, especially through the churches, but it wasn't really enough. And there was a lot of people sleeping you know, on the streets, on the benches, uh, by the warm air grates, in the parks even. And um, this was a major problem. And... Uh, the, the last resort, when the police would find somebody and some wealthy neighbor would, would say, hey, 
you've got to get this person off the street. The last resort was called the police lodging houses, which was basically the basement of the police station. And you have, you know, 40 police stations across the city. So, you know, if you can and you have a men and women's side, you you could lodge, you know, another couple thousand people in these rooms down there. And basically there was no bed. There was a plank on the floor and making the bed was turning the plank. And these um, these were the line of last resort. And Roosevelt decided that this was not an acceptable play. He didn't want these people to be associating with the cops in the same house. Cops are sleeping in that house. For, for many reasons, he thought that there should be a better system. So he shut the police lodging houses. And that, again, was something that, you know, didn't go over too well with a lot of the people in the city. Um, I know you've already gone over this a bit, but Roosevelt leaves his appointment and accepts a new position with within President McKinley's administration. When all was said and done, did New Yorkers decide that Roosevelt was successful in his duties overall? Or was he considered more of a laughingstock? I wouldn't go as far as laughingstock, but I, I, there's no way around it. He just was not considered all that successful. It was it was basically a noble a noble effort. You could say maybe, uh, he came up short. Uh, I, I mean, there's just even the the, the press that were the um, the reform press was against him at the end, and their their judgment was not. They thought he was too strident, too uncompromising. Um, there, there's no way, but, but as history, you know, as historians look at it and the, the distance goes, they see all the quotes. Roosevelt completely declared victory in his autobiography. He makes it out that he succeeded in reforming the police department, <laughs> which, which just, you know, he definitely cleaned up a lot of the vice while he was there. So that, that, that's fair to say. And, and I guess you can't hold him accountable that it turned corrupt within six months of his departure, but uh, he, it was a noble effort and he certainly did clean it up a lot. And he, he also brought in some reforms that were really, uh, I mean, ironically, he reintroduced the nightstick, the two foot long nightstick. He cleaned up the, um, he added more weapons. He cleaned up, um, you know, the police revolver. He got a standardized revolver for the New York city police. Um, no, he, he had some, see, he introduced the bike cops. He, he had some successes, but the masses of the city were thrilled to see him go. And what's really interesting about all of this, and a silver lining for him, even though he'd left New Yorkers with a bad taste in their mouths, he was seen nationally in a far more positive light, wasn't he? Absolutely. They, they, right. They saw it very positive. It, it would have been, and even if it, it was the idea of a man coming in and trying to clean up the police force of New York, the most corrupt force and succeeding as far as he did he he would get incredible praise against against all odds and and uh so yeah played very well in the national press how do you think his, his time as a new york police commissioner affected his later role as president i would think it had to open his eyes at least seeing poverty and uh corruption and uh i would have to i mean i have to say that i focused so hard on 1897 and earlier that I'm no expert on his presidency. So, I've, I've read some Roosevelt biographies, and often it's said that his political views changed over time, and many attribute it to his time as police commissioner, where he witnessed such absolute poverty that his views softened on issues like providing basic human services to those at the, the bottom most rungs. I, I think so, and I think he also 
did not get uh, a great opinion of the wealthy of New York during this time period. Um, you know, so that you, know, you talk about malefactors of great wealth and his trust busting. I think this a lot of their behavior, uh, you know, that probably cemented his his views against the arrogant rich in New York. I'd like to bring up The Alienist one more time. I've been a huge fan of the books forever. I've read The Alienist and the sequel, The Angel of Darkness, probably half a dozen times each over the last however many years. And I'm happy with 99% of the show. I mean, the visuals are stunning. The attention to historical detail, incredible. And by the way, anyone who loves The Alienist really should pick up your book. It's a, it's a great companion piece that will paint an amazing backdrop to the story. But I've got to say, I have a problem with the casting of Theodore Roosevelt. I'm just not sold. The actor playing him is, is so soft-spoken and low-key, and I really want the, the nervous energy, the charisma, the intensity that many of us so associate with Teddy Roosevelt. And, and I'm just not getting it on this show. I'm a little disappointed about that. I wasn't involved in them. Um in that decision. Uh, I would agree with you. Roosevelt was so opinionated, so dynamic. It, it's just, you know, the more, as I wrote the book, I always was running through my mind was the noble failure idea. But now I just realized the idea of what he was trying to do was so spectacular. And it was, I have a lot more respect. The more that the more the time has passed since I finished writing that book for, for Roosevelt's effort. I mean, I wish he could compromise on tiny areas and maybe he did learn to do that through this job. But um, amazing effort. Well, this has been excellent. Thanks so much again for your time. That was great. Thanks for having me. Again, my guest has been Richard Zacks, author of Island of Vice, Theodore Roosevelt's quest to clean up sin-loving New York. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>